When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. I can't tell you how excited I am about today's podcast. I get to talk about Arya. She's my favorite. And, and, and I found the person, maybe the only person in the world that loves Arya more than I do. That's Lisa Wolfwork. You'll remember her because she was one of my first Electric Boogaloo guests. She is a professor of English literature at University of Virginia. She specializes in African-American literature, but she loves Game of Thrones. And she's working on a couple of writing projects. One relates to Lovecraft Country. I'm a huge fan of that show, so I'm looking forward to see what she writes about that. When she's done, I'm hoping to maybe put a link to her essay in the show notes. That'll probably be a few months from now before she's actually done. So Lisa and I indulge in our conversation about our favorite character, Arya Stark. Steve and I talk about Walk of Punishment. You will remember this episode very well for how it ends. I won't say more about it now. And then I thought the Q&A with Jana Matthews this week worked really well as a bird's eye view. So I've included that question for Jana at the very end in lieu of a bird's eye view. Here is Professor Lisa Woolfork. I don't know about you, but whenever I flip the page and I see Arya's name at the top of the chapter, I get a little endorphin high. Yes. And it doesn't matter who it was. It could be Tyrion. It could be Jon. Something big could have just happened. But if I get to spend just a little bit of time with Arya, I get a little thrill out of it. And that's one of the things I'm reminded about, about Martin's world building. The way that he is able to inhabit these characters so distinctly. And I know folks sometimes complain, maybe jokingly, about there being too many characters. Mm -hmm. But there is not one character who is not thoroughly, carefully, and rigorously drafted or drawn you know, uh-huh. and so like even without knowing the names on the chapters, you know who is being centered in it. And that's something that I think is just really amazing. With just flipping through the book, you can you can see that. And that's something that's so I think incredibly hard to do, but he does mm-hmm. it really well. Like for this particular chapter, you know, when Ned walks in the room for the first time, it's not that Eddard walks in the room, it's that father walks in the room. Yes. And then for the rest of the chapter, you know, it goes back and forth between Eddard Stark and Father or the Hand or whatever. But it was that sort of initial introduction that you know it's not just the Hand of the King. He's a whole different person to Arya than he is to anyone else in the story. Yes, yes. And it's just that little hint, you know, that little sort of attention to detail 
that kind of puts me in a different frame of mind. And I'm able to kind of view Ned differently than I am through other characters' eyes. Yes. And this is one of the reasons I believe it's really so well done and so deliberately crafted that it starts with father had been fighting again, you know, with Mm -hmm. the council, like the way that she can, that her perceptions are so acute there from a child's perspective, like being able to read her father's mood and understand, but also to extract all sorts of lessons from her father in Mm -hmm. leadership, in family. And I think that her, I don't know, again, this could just be, you know, 50-50 hindsight. But this conversation to me really puts Arya on the path that she follows all the way through the entire series. I can't wait to hear you say more than that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a quick synopsis of the chapter. Sure. So here's my synopsis. Arya is at supper with her father's men, Sansa, Septa Mordain, Jane Poole, and company. When her father shows up late, she overhears him lamenting over the foolishness of holding a tournament. Sansa belittles and insults Arya, who's desperately missing her old life at Winterfell. She reflects on Micah's murder and decides to run back to her room. After several attempts to bring her to heal by several different adults, her father enters the room and discovers Needle. Eventually, he decides to allow her to keep the sword and explains to Arya that she must begin growing up. Three days later, she meets her new dancing master, Cyril Farrell, and begins her training. So, Lisa Wolfwork, would you like to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall we just climb... The Ladder of Chaos. Let's climb the chaos ladder. (laughs) Chaos, yes. Chaos is freedom. I'm fascinated. So you think that this sets her on a trajectory. Yeah, and the reason I say that is because what she's when she has that that heart to heart with her father finally, after the tears, after the the rage, Mm -hmm. she also just tells him, I am not the person you think I am. And that's when he acknowledges that her wildness, as he calls it, is wolf's blood. And that there's something about Arya that reminds him of his sister and how his father would, if his father would have allowed Lyanna to wear a sword, she would have done so. That what, what she's, Arya's character, who might seem as if she is outside the family a bit, you know, calling her Arya horse face and Uh Arya underfoot. But what she really is, is a Stark of Winterfell. And her wolfness, her inability to conform, is something that is also true with the Starks. And so there's something, I think, about that particular that particular conversation that I actually thought was quite um, progressive and quite... Um, yeah quite profound you know that the idea that eddard is not going to say hey no what you're what you're going to do is we're going to marry you to somebody and you're going to have a bunch of babies and be the head of a household and he Uh, might just think that this is a phase or whatever i mean he may not be i mean he may think i'm gonna have to let her you know live out her little wolf dreams first but eventually she'll come around or whatever yeah i don't know if he even believed that i don't think he was necessarily humoring her because he could have as he threatened broken that sword across his knee or he could have tried right she said needle wouldn't break let me read this i'm so glad you brought this up i I underlined this passage too so i'm going to read this little uh section i had to snap this toy across my knee here and now and just put an end to this nonsense Needle wouldn't break, Arya said defiantly. 
but her voice betrayed her words. It has a name, does it? Her father sighed. Ah, Arya, you have a wildness in you, child. The wolf's blood, my father used to call it. Lyanna had a touch of it, too, and my brother Brandon had more than a touch. It brought them both to an early grave. Arya heard sadness in his voice, and he did not often speak of his father, or his brother and sister, who had died before she was born. Lyanna might have carried a sword, if my father had allowed it. You remind me of her sometimes. You even look like her. Lyanna was beautiful, Arya said, startled. Everyone said so. It was not a thing that was ever said of Arya. So... I feel like here she is learning for the first time that she belongs to sort of this tradition of a woman with wolf's blood where she always thought she always felt a little bit alone because all all she had to go on was like looking at Kat or looking at Sansa and now kind of saying, oh, actually, I'm a little bit like my Aunt Liana. And on top of that, she's hearing for the first time that she's actually beautiful and she gets to hear it from her father's voice. And the thing that I thought about that, and I think I, I I was also taken by that passage, but I think I looked in the opposite direction. I was thinking what this reveals to us about Eddard. Oh. Because when he says that Liana had a touch of it and my brother had more than a touch, the person he does not say has a touch is himself. That's interesting. And we have to remember that Eddard was, you know, the second choice. Brandon was supposed to marry Kat. Uh-huh. Brandon was supposed to be the one that was the head of the family. He's the diligent second son, right? The backup. And it's because of his brother's early death, you know, due to the the wolf's blood or whatever, that he's put in the position that he is right now anyway, right? There's no way that yep. he would have lived this life had his older brother not played a, a little bit fast and loose with his own life, right? Absolutely. It's and this is like I know that I don't I don't really like to do a lot of like real world connections, for example, and say that Game of Thrones is really medieval Europe or whatever. Uh But, you know, when you think about different abdications that have happened in the um, British monarchy, you know, one of the reasons that Elizabeth is on the throne now is because her uncle bailed, Uh, you know, for both Liana's choices and Brandon's choices. That really determined the last 14 years of Ned's life, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And the thing that I, one of the, I thought that this was one of the best examples of good parenting in the entire series. Hmm. You have a, a father who, instead of saying, no, I'm going to force you to comply. I'm going to, if I can't break needle, I will take it away from you. And I want you to be more like Sansa. Another thing that um, that Arya reveals about herself is that, did you notice how upset she was about Lady? She kept talking about how Lady was killed and how they killed Lady and how upset she was about that. I feel like she's more upset about Lady being killed than Sansa is. And it was Sansa's wolf. And that to yeah. me that that says something as well in addition to the grief that she feels about Micah that in some ways lady the the instrument the sword that she was given also unleashed a lot of disaster because yeah. of the strict social coding in that society girls aren't supposed to have swords um people who are high born aren't supposed to play quote unquote mm-hmm. with people who are low born and it it also seems like there's something about the the disregard that Micah's death is given in the minds of everybody else 
but Absolutely. Arya. That Arya is the person who seems to have the ethical and more the ethical the kind of an ethically driven and moral response one that's ethically driven and moral response moral morally responsible in the ways that we as contemporary readers would know it right contemporary readers hopefully aren't just saying oh yeah big deal some kid got you know killed that's what it gets for being uppity right like we you know tend not Mm. to say that anymore hopefully um but in that time that was much more in in that time look at me in that time there is no time that time is all made up it's not real y'all but what martin in the the setting of this story in the setting of this story the the, it is it is normal right yeah and it's also normal because we are getting again we have to remember too that we are only getting the upper class, ruling class, dominant class perspective. If you are not almost in the dominant always, class, almost always that's what we get, right? Yeah, I mean, like what what poor people does this book represent? Like in terms of getting a character point of view chapter, there's no like poor people. Yeah, I'm the to only think of, like, I think the I'm, closest I'm, I'm, we really get is like Davos who has already sort of risen through the ranks, right? Yeah, but that's he's an onion knight, right? He's a former. A former low, 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 lowly person, a yeah. former up, whatever, up jumped, right? <laughs> up jumped, quote unquote. Yeah, up jumped, as if to say, you know, this is this this is when you get to the kind of the perversity of monarchies, right? This right. idea that these people actually do believe that they were appointed by God to rule, and uh-huh. that you know everything, all it really is a Byzantine and vicious social system, but they think of it as if it's all about blood and birth and blah blah blah. I was thinking as you were talking about an example, and I think I missed this little line until I read it um, last night. So Ned is talking with Arya, and Arya's really blaming herself, right? Absolutely, so she, yes. She knows yes. that she had some responsibility for Micah's death, and yep. of course she's probably blaming herself too much, right? Of course. But- what happens is she's blaming herself, and Ned says, no, Micah's murder is the fault of the hound. And then he adds this. He says, and the cruel woman he serves, or he says something like that. Yes, yes. Okay, so it's interesting because in Ned's view, it wasn't the hound acting alone. The hound was probably acting on Cersei's orders. In other words, it's kind of like Cersei said, Go get the boy, but do not bring him back alive. And I think I'm I'm maybe, you know, speculating a little bit too much of that, but I think that's that's kind of something close it, to what it, Ned actually thinks. I really thinks. I think I think you are absolutely onto something. It's funny because in my, when I was teaching my Game of Thrones class, this was a quiz question I would ask and people would often get it wrong. Who does Arya blame? Who does Arya first blame for Micah's death? And the first person she blames is herself. People That's think right. that she blames the queen. No, the queen is not the first person she blames. The first person she blames is herself. It's interesting, too, that um, that that what Eddard says to her is, of course, never blame yourself. It wasn't her responsibility. But if we think about what Arya's position is, she is a girl who wants to learn to do something that girls are not allowed to do in this right. society. So she has to find her own way to make it work. Her brothers won't help her. Um, Nobody's going to take her seriously except for a friend with whom she has a good relationship. And because they have this trust, you know, Mm -hmm. he's been able to um, suspend 
the social niceties that are required when you're playing with the person who is the, right. the one of the ladies of the house, right? And it really is that this boy was murdered by a social structure that said it was okay to kill him. Absolutely. And this is because... She's because not- Who's she going to practice swords with? It's not going to be Sansa. It's not going to be. It's not going to be anybody. It will be nobody, right? And so she's trying to build something that she needs, and then it turns out to be lethal. And she's trying to do it in in private. Like she's like, okay, Micah will do it with me, but if I'm going to make sure that we are way out in the woods, yes, so no one will actually see a girl playing swords, and it's that. And Micah's in the exact wrong place at the exact wrong time. And Arya is smart enough to know that sometimes if you're in the exact wrong place at the exact wrong time, then even a child, innocent, you know, well-meaning, well-intentioned, whatever, even a child can get murdered. And you know what else? It's not that just even a child can get murdered. Even one child can condemn another child to death. Yeah, And this is what Joffrey is, right? Now, we have to remember that Joffrey's a sovereign. And when you have a sovereign, a sovereign is chosen by God to rule. And mm. therefore, if you do anything that to harm the sovereign, that might be a threat to a sovereign, that's treason. And yes. so the fact that he was even playing with Joffrey, and it's always going to be Joffrey's word over his, what, and this is why he was so scared. And yes. there's none there's none of this like mercy, there's none of this, you know, you touched Joffrey or you didn't really, but we're just gonna say you did. Um and this is a lesson in um compliance and obedience and I mean just giving somebody's child back to them in a bag. I know. And this is a butcher, this is someone who has been with the Stark family. I imagine for generations. I bet and his father we, yeah, was and the we butcher. We never hear the butcher's perspective. We of course never you don't, hear... because no one gives a shit. That's why. That's right. I'm so sorry. Arya's you the on your only podcast, one that actually does give a shit. After I read that little line about Cersei, I, here's what I wrote. I wrote this down. I said, "If Ned is right that Cersei is also to blame, I think it's worth saying that Joffrey's narrative killed Micah, or more accurately." The story that Cersei needs to tell about Joffrey's bravery and nobility cannot include the truth about Micah. So Micah has to die. And I agree. I, I, I like it. I think that absolutely works. And the thing that I keep returning to with Lady is it just shows how lethal femininity and gender and womanhood and girlhood can be. Right. Because the lady is the highest role to which women in this society can attain. It's not just a compliment. It is a social position. It is a social status that you are a lady and you are married to a lord. These things go together. Mm -hmm. And the idea that lady could just be taken and used as a substitute punished person, a substitute, you know, a substitute villain, a -hmm. substitute criminal. Right. Nymeria was the one who um, who bit Joffrey, but Lady is the one who will die for it. And that seems so significant to me. The death of Lady. Hmm. 
should be a warning to everybody in that family. But of course, when you read the books, you know, multiple times, you realize that this family doesn't take warnings very well and that everything (laughs) is a warning. (laughs) Well, here's, I like this a lot. And it could be that I'm reading too much into the metaphor, but here's where we don't do that. We don't do that. I'm always telling my students, like, I might be reading too much into this. It's like, I doubt it. I doubt you are. If you think about if you think about Lady as an avatar for uh, or a stand-in for Sansa, what happens to Sansa? She gets imprisoned in King's Landing and really has any Stark that's in her kind of beaten out of her. Yep. And what happens with Nymeria? Nymeria gets isolated and then run off and becomes wild, and Arya ends up escaping and she ends up being on her own. And she really has to kind of run away in order to find herself. And I think another way that you could say that is she kind of goes, everyone in the story thinks that she's gone wild or whatever. And I think, you know, there's, there's, there's something really powerful about that because for some wildness would be seen as um, a trait that they didn't want. Like, you know, Sansa does not want anything about the wild associated with her that's Mm -hmm. why her her wolf was called lady that's why lady Mm -hmm. could sit at table or under the table quietly and you know just behave herself Mm -hmm. but it's it's absolutely true i think that when you're in a feudal society and the and the roles are so restricted by you know sedimented with hundreds of years of tradition you have to break out of that system if you want to find yourself your true self because no one else in the system really cares about your true self. They just want you to prop up the system and do what you're told. And that yeah. compliance, I believe is something that, um, uh, that Aria from the very beginning, maybe because she was the second sister, maybe because she's, you know, because she is so young or just because of her particular genetic makeup, but she is not compliant. That is not her personality. And what I admire about Ned in this moment with her is he is not going to force it. We don't get the sense that he is just humoring her so she can get it out of her system. It seems to me a bit that he's like, you know, if my Lord Father would have allowed it, Liana would have carried a sword. And and remember, if you go a little bit further down from where you were reading, mm-hmm. it, it talks about how this wolf's blood killed both of them, right? And maybe right. he's thinking, you know what? Maybe Liana might have had a better chance if she got a chance to, have, to actually carry a sword. Yeah, let's not. Yeah, exactly. It's a little bit like, as a parent, you can kind of, you can't really keep your children from rebelling, but sometimes you can set the terms by which you can sort of create an acceptable rebellion. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think Ned might oh, be yeah, thinking, it does. I would much rather Arya practice swords in secret in a controlled environment and sort of channel that wolf's blood that way than for her to live repressed for all of her life and then run off with like some guy and die in a bed like way far away from home in childbirth, which is what happened to Liana, right? Right, that's right. Yeah, and I and I I I do I hear that, and I I like it. And the thing that I think is just so important to remember, and there's lots of things to remember, but I feel like Arya is someone who starts off. She seems to be the character that has the most growth. At the same time, when I say most growth, I don't mean she grows in the sense of transforming from one thing to another. I believe she is the character whose trajectory 
allows almost every experience that she has helps her to be the person she becomes by the end of the novel Hmm. or by the end of the series. And it's very difficult to kind of extricate the HBO adaptation from one's imagination when reading these things now. But I believe that Arya is the person who was necessary. And again, I don't know what Martin is doing with the books to finish out the series, Mm -hmm. but there's something I thought so useful about Arya being able to come into her own in an ind- as an independent person, as an independent woman, as an independent, as like as a Brienne of Tarth, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But who is also included in the social structure, not ostracized, not longing. Like Brienne of Tarth longs to be included. She loves Renly. She wanted Le- Renly right. to love her. Yeah. Um, but Arya is not seeking that. She's not seeking approval. She's not seeking, you know, you know, some boy's attention. She's not interested in that. She just wants to live her full, complete and independent life on her mm-hmm. own terms. Mm-hmm. And that is not something that is permitted in this society. And so I just think it's wonderful how Martin kind of sets her on this path through violence, through trauma, through horror, to help her decide if she really does want that. And it seems as though at every opportunity, she says she does. You know what I was noticing about her? I'm I'm glad we're talking about her larger arc because this is like Arya's second point of view chapter. We're about 20% way through the first novel. And the stakes for Arya are as high as anyone in the whole book, anyone we've met. I mean, even the kings and queens in this narrative, they're dealing with problems about personality or problems about secrets or whatever. Arya has experienced a murder. And and then she has to walk around when everyone in her life just wants to pretend like it didn't happen. Here we have like Mm -hmm. this child... And her trauma is as severe as anyone else in the story, and maybe more so. Micah died. Micah's dead, and no one cares. And that's what she's, this child has to carry that weight with her. And so, here at this early stage of the story, the stakes are the highest for this, the most vulnerable, or someone who should be the most vulnerable yes. in the story. It's funny because as you were speaking, I was thinking back to her. I was like, yeah, this is her second chapter. And how does this set us up? When you look back at her first point of view chapter mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the first line in that chapter, Arya's stitches were crooked again. again. <laughs> yes, of course. And that it, it's just so, I guess because the sword ends up being named Needle and yeah. this, you know, that this is where I think this is where John gives her the sword in this chapter. It's just something about the, that her, her, her stitches are crooked. And if we, you know, if we read this for, the ways in which girls and women were meant to be managed in this society, how they were supposed to divert and entertain themselves. They were supposed to do this by sitting quietly and doing needle arts. They were supposed to funnel all of their creative energies Mm -hmm. into uh, reproduction and child rearing and household management and ladies arts type thing. Yeah. And what Aria ends up receiving by the end of this is a needle she can actually use. Mm-hmm. is a needle that is more in line with her personality, with her vision for her own future. And I think this is why Arya is a fan favorite. And it's also, the needle also 
connects her story to John in a way where yes. if you think about where John is in the narrative and where Arya is in the narrative, they're almost two sides of the same coin. You know, John's up north away from home and realizing like this life sucks. This life that I, the, the only life that I could choose for myself. Right. It, it right. kind of sucks. And I miss, I kind of miss home, even though it was really hard for me at home. And he's feeling alone. He's feeling isolated. And Arya is experiencing a lot of those same things in King's Landing. And each of them are comforted by the memory of the other. Yes. Yes. And I think what I was thinking about that when uh, when Ned was saying how she reminds him of his sister mm-hmm. and this this question about John and John being this bastard and half brother, but how the two of how John and Arya look more like each other. And right. that it when it I don't know, I just feel like that is really a very cool a very cool thing that they have this unique connection that that perhaps John as someone who is in the family but mm-hmm. not of the family, right? That right. because he's he's so accustomed to being tolerated by, you know, or just grudgingly hostily tolerated by Catlett. Yeah, and think about what that does to her. I mean, the person with whom she most identifies is the person who's most clearly an outsider. Right. Exactly or, that. Or That's at, exactly at least what most clearly liminal in the family, right? Yep. And that they recognize that in each other, right? Everybody mm-hmm. else has red hair. They got the Tully looks. They got the Tully coloring, et cetera, et cetera. But Arya doesn't and neither does John. And and that that's why I think it's so interesting to to that John empowers her with the thing that becomes so important for her that is some that when that needle is the thing you think about all the losses that the starks experience throughout the series that needle you know though it might travel a little bit away from her she eventually gets it back and that this is her i don't know it just I it's just her connection to her who yes. it's both her mnemonic anchor it represents her life in winterfell it represents john for all of sort of the aimlessness and the chaos of her journey, Needle represents who she really is. Yes. And it represents, and that Needle is kind of her voice, um, or what mm. we've come to think about the voice today, like your voice being your ability to represent yourself, mm. your ability to speak your truth, your ability to to get and access power. And I was thinking about when she's sitting down with... Um, with Ned in there, they're having this conversation and she's talking about the people that she hates. And she's like, well, I don't really hate Sansa and I don't really hate Septa, right. but I really do hate the queen. I really do hate Joffrey. And it's like, that's when she starts to begin this list. It's almost as if um, in the same way that when Yoren tells her about his list and it's almost like, I was thinking about it as you were speaking about it as a mnemonic. It's almost like a rosary for her, mm. right? That she holds on to this thing. It helps her to focus her energies. Mm-hmm. And so when she learns later on in the series, um, this ritual to help her calm down by all people she wants to kill, all her enemies, mm-hmm. um, that she attacked, that, that needle is by her side in that. Yeah, she even says she even says it's something like a prayer, right? She uses yes. it like a prayer. Yes, absolutely. And that yeah, that it focuses her attention. You know, it focuses the prayer. I don't know. I just feel like John giving her needle was of mm. course, as you said, representative of that connection between the two of them that both of them felt marginalized within the family even though they are deeply 
actually of the family, but they just get treated like they're not because of either behavior hmm. in Arya's case or um, bloodline in in John's case. Right. At the same time, when she's equipped with Needle, it is giving her something that no other character has. And I really think that having Sirio Farrell, a Bravazzi, Bravazzi, a, Bra- a Bravosi, Bravazzi is a really interesting and delicious drink. Bravosi <laughs> um, person, we don't really get a lot of, we don't get a lot of attention paid to cultures beyond those of Westeros. I mean, and by that, I mean, I don't mean like Daenerys's chapter point of view chapters when she's with the Dothraki. That's not what I mean. I mean, in Westeros, it's often like the free cities might be mentioned here or there, but they're kind of treated with suspicion and yeah. a little bit of xenophobia, I think, the way yeah, they think about Everything that's important that's happening in the world is happening in Westeros. That's the view. Of the Westerosi, obviously. That's right, yeah. Right? And that's, you know, of course. But one of the things that is interesting to me is that by her having a Bravosi teacher, she is learning so many different things about how the world works and that the world is bigger, mm-hmm. much bigger than where she is, even though she's in a position of privilege and power and she lives in a castle. And you would imagine that someone who is near the top of the social hierarchy could find freedom in that. It's actually a lot of restrictions and bondage, etc. But the thing that I love about the when the way the chapter closes is is the kind of the reward for Arya and her gender nonconformity and her other social yes. nonconformity. Right? That's right. That when he says to her, she's like, "I'm a girl." She's like, and Serio's like, "Girl, boy, doesn't matter. You're a sword." That's right. You know, you wanted a sword, so it's not so much about having the sword; it's about being the sword. Mm-hmm. And that this is like, there's no other person who has said to her, it doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl. Hmm. Like, that, when you think about this society, if you are a boy or a girl, it could be life or death. And it took a Provosi to make that connection for her, right? Of course. He's the only one that could because Western society is so jacked up. <laughs> you know, it's just a mess. It's There's no way for them to be able to step outside that. And that's why, because it's it's really insular. It's uh-huh. an insular culture. It's an insular and very tightly focused. Whereas the free cities, um, which seems to have eschewed those particular hierarchies, though we do learn later they have mm. a lot of their own hierarchies. There's, I don't know, it just feels like that she is opening up to the possibilities that her life does not need to be attached yeah. by a string to this kingdom uh, in order for her to uh, to be a full and complete person. I So there's a sense in which Ned makes this possible, right? Because he's, uh, presumably he's the one that hires Sirio to do this with her, right? And he's yes. the one that allows her to keep the sword and train with the sword. And I think it's, I think sometimes... We read Ned flatly, and and I think that there's a bit more complexity there. So, for instance, I think Ned's default position when he's not thinking about it, when when Arya is an afterthought, his default position is to kind of be the voice of the structure. But he has the ability to sort of step out of his default position and with intentionality really see Arya for who she is. 
Yes. And even though yes. he has that capability, his default position is probably going to be just like, I represent the, the, the societal structure and you're going to have to come to heal and obey and things like that. So it's not to say that he's the perfect father or the, you know, the, the, you know, the most progressive man in the world or whatever. It's just that in his default, he represents something different to her than when he is sitting down and intentionally trying to see her for who she is. Yes. And I think that that's an important complexity because I don't, I I feel like too often with Ned at least, he's just viewed as this flat character who doesn't quite get it. I mean, that's part of him, but he also has this other deeper part of him too. Yes, he does. And I think at, at at that deeper part, the deeper part of him is mostly is concerned with family. And if we think about Ned's own losses, mm-hmm. right, to have his father and brother tortured to death in King's Landing, to have his sister um, taken from him or removed from the family or voluntarily leave, all of the things that we don't really know yet, um, means that he is alone to take on a lot of responsibilities and all of Winterfell and all of the Starks that have come before him are his responsibility, right? Yeah. and It's on his shoulders. Exactly. It's on his shoulders. And I think even as he's, I think when you say that he's about, you know, that he's really, you know, reinforcing the social structures at, at start, at the beginning, I think that's true. And that's why I think his ability to see her for who she really is, is important. I mean, having the having wolf's blood is something that all Starks have. Hmm. It all depends on how active or dominant it is. And, and I think he's like, he's trying to help her to see we have come to a dangerous place. Right. Yeah. Um, and and remember our words. Right. Remember our words. We really need to stick together. We yeah. really need to be together on this. And that I think that even those words in my reading come back to haunt him because Ari is the one that has all the information that he needs to put things together. That's interesting. Right. And he doesn't and listen he, to her. And because it's almost like you said, you, you, the way that you described it, Anthony, you said that it's almost like he's, uh, he has two minds. The first one is just comply to the structure. Do what you're told. Yeah. It's easier for me if you just comply. The second one is, okay, I see you. I see who you are. You are not your sister. You have a totally different approach to this. Let me, let me talk to you in a way that honors who you are but also connects you to the Starks of Winterfell. And can we channel that rage to support us? Yeah, and give her enough freedom. Like, give her a sense. It's always, being a parent, it's always tricky when it comes to the, the amount of freedom. But you're like, I'm not sure that you're going to do <laughs> do well if I give you this much It's freedom. so interesting, too, the way that you talk about this in terms of parenting. Because we cannot, in my opinion use the parenting methods that maybe you do as a parent or I do as a parent or Uh what we received as children from our own parents because parenting in King's parenting in this world for the upper class seems more like an administrative duty. And by this, I mean, (laughs) it's true, right? There's so many layers Uh of between 
a child and their parent. Yeah, and the further Mordain is like middle management, unfortunately. No, she really is. She's like she's the they have a nanny. They have someone who will train them to ride horses. They have someone who will, you know, teach them. You know, I'm just saying they are yeah. not this is not like a, a nuclear family with two and a half kids all living in right. the same house with uh, with some dogs or wolves, right? right? <laughs> this is an entire system. The when you go to Winterfell, it's like a town. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and that town is the the entire thing is there for the support of the Stark family. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So that the Stark family can protect everybody that lives within its walls. And so this notion that, you know, you're going to sit down and have your dad like read you a bedtime story or your mom. That's not something that's you know necessarily a daily requirement. The person that reads your stories is old Nan. Right. That's She's right. the person. Yeah. Right. And the person and so, who's raising you and teaching you how. Yeah. To kind of I mean, like a lot of these folks, is, for example, is, they yeah. did it like a lot of these these um these queens, these upper class women didn't breastfeed their own children. Right. They found poor women with full tits to do that. Right. Who had their own kids. So yeah. there's a lot of outsourcing that that takes place in parenting for these upper class elite families. And so we I don't think we can so even if you were to say and I do think you're right in part that Ned is kind of giving her this um this freedom and he's allowing her to I mean like allowing her to do this because it's true. She would never have connected with Cereal Pharrell on her own. Yeah. She does not have that kind of access. But Ned does. He does have that access. And because he does, he's willing to share that for the benefit of his child. And I think in doing so, he ends up creating or laying the groundwork for Arya to create herself as the character she becomes and the one that makes her such a fan favorite and makes her such a badass. You know, the other thing that I noted in this chapter is that Ned is not going to sort of rigidly tell Arya she shouldn't have lied about Nymeria. Oh, that's right. That's right. There's some good lies. There's good lies. Yeah, that's right. He says, it, even the lie was not without honor. Yes. that I love that. Even that lie was not without honor. And the question about honor is something that we talked a lot about in my class. Like, what does honor mean? Is honor a noun or is it a verb? That honor and duty are the two cardinal virtues, in my opinion, of Eddard Stark's character. He is so much about honor, honoring family obligations, honoring the social structure, Uh honoring your king, honoring your wife, honoring, 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 right? And that is, I think that that absolutely is his default. And, and it, duty. Absolutely. It's a coin. Honor on one side and duty on the other. That's why he's such a stick in the mud. He's yes, and he does have there's this there's this other part of him. It doesn't occupy a lot of his mental space. But there is a part of him that can sit down with Arya and say, you know what, Sansa really kind of had to lie. And he doesn't say it in that way, but what he says is, look, we all lie. And here's an example of a lie that you told, and she doesn't deny it, and it's really painful for her to sort of for her to kind of relive the fact that she actually had to shoo Nymeria away, and she has to relive that. And then he tells her, "Yeah, that was probably the right thing to do, and it was probably the right thing to do to lie about it after you did it." And so all of a sudden, here we have. Arya, not just with the weapon, uh, like a, a literal weapon, but he's giving her a weapon of like, 
there are gray areas in life and you need to figure out how to wield those to your yes. own benefit and to the and to the benefit of the tribe, you know. Yeah, and it's interesting because the re- the remember the lie conversation starts when Arya is confiding in him, like you know, I hate them, mm. I hate the queen, I hate Joffrey, and she's like, the queen, um, she's you know, she's crying and she's she's enraged. The hound and the queen and the king and the pr- and Prince Joffrey, I hate all of them. Mm. Joffrey lied; it wasn't the way he said, and I, I hate Sansa too. She did remember. She just lied so we so Joffrey mm-hmm. would like her. We all lie, her father said. Yeah. Or do you truly think I believe Namiria ran off? Right? But I think I I don't know. I think that 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 I don't know. I feel like that Ned's wrong here. I think that of course everybody lies. People lie. Lies are things that exist in the world, okay. right? But Joffrey's lie is different than Sansa's lie. Is yeah. different than Arya's lie. Joffrey's lie is to protect his reputation mm-hmm. because he doesn't want people to know that a girl bested him. Yeah. Right? A girl younger than him took his sword and threw it in the river. Right? Well, he's a cruel bully. That's the that's the heart of him. He's a cruel sadistic. Right. But so cruel who bullies likes to can see lie. other people suffer, right? But then what about Sansa? Sansa lies. She chooses yeah. some boy over her own sister. Right. Right? That is a lie. She is choosing to align herself with the family she wants to be a part of. So she, she I mean, I feel like that betrayal is yeah. deeply significant, right? Because her loyalties, because she's not yet married to this boy, her loyalty should be with her sister. Right. And yet she still seems to believe she's kind of has this like proto um, abusive Stockholm syndrome wife in a bad situation. Right. She's like, I can fix him. I can fix him, Mm -hmm. you know, by, by talking to him and by doing what he likes. And yeah, then, you know, as we all know, he's a, if she just says the right thing, just says the right thing. You know, also it's almost like her sister and her family, the birth family is always going to be there, but she's got to put on a good face for the new family. And so that's a lie. Yeah, this is the contradictory nature of both Ned and Sansa because on the face of it, I think that Ned would say, look, we're a wolf pack. We do for each other first and foremost, right? But mm-hmm. he's also has this keen allegiance to the to the throne, which is not a northern thing, right? Exactly. That's a southern thing, and he has an allegiance to King's Landing. He has an allegiance to Robert Baratheon. He does not have a a allegiance to that throne. That throne murdered his father and his brother. He has an allegiance to Robert Baratheon because he believes that Robert could be a better king. Um, he doesn't understand, in my opinion. But does he really think that? Suck. I don't think he really thinks that. I think I think he realizes I made this bed and now I'm going to lie in it. But he's taken oh, that job. He's taken hand of the king. Well, yeah, I think that he's taken the job all because of the friendship between the two of them, and he wants things. It's almost like returning to some of the glory days, and to also help. You know what? It's almost like he has that same. I can save him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you think about it, he has that same. I can save him, as Sansa seems to have about Joffrey. Mm-hmm. I can. I can help him be a better man. That kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. A couple notable introductions in this chapter. This is the first time we hear about Arya's other nickname. So she's called Arya Underfoot by Fat Tom. 
She ends up having tons of different names in this story, right? Yes. And we've been introduced to Arya Horseface, and this chapter introduces us to Arya Underfoot. And it really is kind of the way that she feels a lot of the time, right? She's trying to live her life, but she just she's always chafing against the system that's around her, and so she ends up getting trampled a bit by it. And importantly, we are for the first time we're introduced to Serial Pharrell. Yes, yes. Oh, you know, one thing before we talk about Serial a bit, the thing that I loved yeah. about this section as well is Arya is recognizing her father's leadership style and how his leadership style is rooted in community. And so remember how he mm. she's talking about like sitting at table with her father and that every right. night he would invite a different man from his retinue, a different man from Winterfell. Either it could be, you know, Harlan talking about, you know, this or it could be the armorer talking about, you know, steel or Van Poole talking about, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. ledgers and 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 stock, you know, and how much they have left in the house right. of this and that. And I think that that says something as well about about the Starks and what Eddard is teaching the children in this is that even though we do indeed have a feudal society um, where feudalism and these people, you know, they're meant to share what they give, share what they create, share what they harvest with us, we also extend to them our protection. It's a reciprocal relationship. It's almost like he's trying right. to democratize feudalism. Well, on top of that, he says she she overheard him say to Rob once, "Don't make your men die, die for, for a stranger." stranger. Right? Yes. So he's a he's I I really think up north, he's actually a decent politician. He just doesn't understand how politics works in the south. Up north, he's actually pretty good at his job. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, that's excellent. That's an excellent point. And it's interesting because that's one of the reasons that Robert wants him, right? Robert wants the fresh insights um, that someone and also someone who can watch his back and someone who has integrity. Yeah. Right. And all of this come from him being a northern person, because in the north, they are not as concerned with the the ins and outs. And I don't know if that's just a Winterfell thing because they are descended from the first men, because they have ties with the free folk, um, like all of these. I don't know if that's why, but it seems like they are more removed from these kind of political uglinesses that happens with intrigue on the throne. And as an outsider, maybe that's what they think will make him, or that's what maybe Robert thinks. He's not, he's an outsider, but he also is close to Robert. Yeah. I think on top of that, I think that the North is a situation where every so often you're going to need that neighbor to survive. Yes. yes. Right. It's going to get cold. It's going to be cold for a long time. And if you don't band together, you're all gonna die if you if if you don't like, you know, create a pack. It's yes. something that's a mentality that you do you get in communities that like regularly feel severity. Yes. You get a sense of community that you might not get if everyone's just fat and happy all the time. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, absolutely. I think that's true. So book versus show differences. When I first started reading this chapter, I was like, oh, none of this is in the show because it's like this big, you know, big hall or whatever where they're eating supper. But that scene in Arya's room between Ned and Arya is actually quite important. And the setup between her and Cyril Pharrell, 
I think the show did pretty well. You don't get as much of Arya's interior. You don't hear about how she's remembering John or how she wishes she could climb out the window like Bran could. Yes. There's just a lot of sort of memory connecting with Winterfell that the show can't quite give you about Arya. That's right. That's right. But what it does give us is a nice heart to heart. And if you rewatch mm. that scene, you'll notice the lighting and the um, music. And the, when they're sitting in Arya's chamber and she's uh-huh. dug Needle out and um, and her father walks in, right? That when he, she says to him, like, this isn't me and about how, you know, I'm not the one that's going to do this. Right. I think that that's significant. You know, that that's it's a way of kind of distilling that essence from the from that part of the the show. I thought I thought I thought the show really did a good job with that kind of summing it up. And then Cereal Pharrell being so different as well. Cereal being this young man with a Mm. head full of curly hair um, and instead of being a bit older. You know, I think he was more seen as maybe elderly with bald head or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, he does look a little bit like a guy who's gone to see it a little bit. Like he used to be the first sword of bravos and now he's a little bit he's all it's kind of like he's teaching people now you know he's no longer the first sword but he's still better than everybody else but in the show that guy looks like you know he he looks young and spry and he for for someone who's not on the screen very often he's such a beloved character in the fandom yes he sure is he really is yeah (laughs) So much so that no one wants to believe he's dead. Right. That's what. Well, of course he's the first sort of. We have, we have to believe he survived. That's right, of course. <laughs> and now Steve and I talk about Walk of Punishment. That's episode three of season three. This begins with the Tully funeral. It includes Gilly giving birth. It ends. With Jamie's sword hand being amputated. Ah! Here's Steve Osborne. Steve? Yes? How much do you know about wombat poop? Probably more than I realize. <laughs> okay. Impress me. I imagine it's pellets. And that, son, is where you'd be wrong. Then eh, I know less than I thought. Wombat poop, I've learned come out in the shape of cubes. Oh. Tiny cubes. That seems intentional. Supposedly. These little... They have one of those Play-Doh Fun Factory uh, inserts. That's exactly what's going on with the intestine of the wombat. They've got this super elastic intestine, but they can like shape them into little cubes. And they're the only animal, according to what I read, they can do this. Now they can. So you, what you're suggesting is they choose this life? They want this. They want it this way, Steve. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> what, what is the evolutionary advantage of uh, cubed poop? They can stack their poop better. <laughs> better. <laughs> Good. <laughs> they can stack it I better. mean, anyone okay. can, can like make a pile of pellets. But these wombats, Steve, they actually create little walls. And, and the higher, the better. And... <sighs> This is okay. possibly to mark territory, like, you know, Trump's wall or whatever. But it also could be to attract a mate. I like the idea that, that Trump's uh, political platform was really just him marking out of dominance. That, well, come on. Let's be honest. <laughs> so, yeah. So I thought you would find that fascinating because I, I find do. that fascinating. Yeah. So Little okay. 
I don't argue with the idea that it wouldn't make stacking easier. Yeah, they're like making it's little the, Legos. It's the fact that this so, so like I mean that <laughs> that's fine. I mean I mean that would just be a benefit, but like that's the intent. <laughs> yeah. They want it that way, Steve. Hmm. Now, you say there's the only animal that can do it, or is it the only animal that does do it? Because here's the thing. If you were to tell me that with just a little bit more focus and intentionality, I, too, might be able to create cube poop, I mean, there'd be no stopping me. I don't think that you could do it. However, I think that maybe like... Challenge accepted. <laughs> I think that... I think that if there was an evolutionary reason, like, for instance, let's say you would find a better mate if mm. your poop... I, I think that goes without saying. <laughs> if your poop was more geometrically aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Well, and according to the Bristol stool scale, there's seven types of poop, and cube poop is not one of them, right? I mean, there's like three different forms of sausage, but it's all about texture. See, this is all new to me. This is all human poop we're talking about now. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Pellets indicates uh, dehydration, hard to pass. Mm -hmm. Then you get to, I think it's sausage. I think two is sausage with segments, mm -hmm. a little more pine coning. Mm -hmm. And then there's sausage with cracks. And then there's smooth sausage. Mm -hmm. um, and then we run into, <sighs> I forget, but I know like the last one, of course, is just, it's just butt pee. Some people are knowledgeable about a subject, but they have no passion for it. Some people are passionate about a subject, but they really lack the key information about it. And, uh, I mean, you, you, you bring it. You bring it. You bring the fire to this topic. Yeah, well, that's, that's important. Which is why I, mean, I thought you'd be interested in the wombat. I'm fascinated by the wombat. And, in fact, I mean, I, I have so, I, I've got more questions now that I have answers. Do you think do you think that the wombat intestines are um an indication of uh intelligent design? I mean, yeah, I would think so, right? But here but here's the beauty, and this goes back to my other argument about context and everything. If we all pooped in cube shapes and then you broke down, hey, the wombat poops out little cylindrical sausages, we'd be like, I gotta see this. What would be the advantage? <laughs> That means that as a culture, we stack our poop just as a matter of course. And the wombat is the right. only animal that wants to rule it for some reason. <laughs> That's right. It's creating more of a trench warfare. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I don't know how to transition, but I think we're uh, we're on episode three of season three. <laughs> yeah. Or should we just talk about the wombat? Mm, consider the wombat Steve Jamie loses his hand yeah he sure does he sure does that's a sword hand dude I know when I watch this episode I get a little thrill at the end oh do I you do. interesting I don't know if I'm a sadist or well, I mean, you don't like Jamie, right? I mean, that's that helps, I, I assume. I mean, I don't not like Jamie. I mean, I, I'm interested. I'm fascinated with Jamie. But it's almost like... You pushed a kid out a window. That's problematic. He's, he's bad. He's a bad guy. 
There's no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah. But there's lots of bad That's, guys in this world. And we just haven't seen a lot of redemption. Like, we haven't. Jamie seems only complicated in the sense that he's charming. Well, however, Jamie was, um, well, he was trying to defend Brienne, right? He's trying to get, yeah. get them not to rape her. Yep. So, I mean, I'm not saying that that redeems Jamie. I'm just saying that. But it shows that there's more to it than just. I think it's fascinating that the thing that most makes him him, the thing that, I mean, what's his reputation? He's a kingslayer. He killed a king with that hand. The thing that most makes him the artist who he thinks he is, is now snatched away from him. That, to me, that's interesting. And, as you could argue, as a result of him trying to change course, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he's like, "I'm gonna do the right thing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going to like." So you know, there's that moment where you're like, "Well, this guy might be all right. This is interesting little development." And then he gets punished for it. No good deed goes unpunished. So the end of the this episode, one of the controversial parts of it is that it ends with a very modern sounding rendition of Baron the Lady. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to know how you received the that sort of jarring modern conclusion to this episode. Uh, I'm that I I'm still somewhat vexed because it does it it changes the way you're viewing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it the fourth wall's broken, the genre busting finish after something that's pretty dramatic, right? I yeah. mean, it's like on one hand, it, no pun intended, I guess. Uh, it it feels like it undercuts, no pun intended, the the gravity of the scene mm-hmm. because you're like, whoa. But on the other hand, there we go. I suppose it adds to a little bit of the chaos because, I mean, you, you think one thing and then another thing. Like, you, there's multiple misdirections, right? I mean, like, all of a sudden, he's, he's, he's misdirecting yeah. to try to save Brienne, which yeah. in and of itself is a, is a misdirection of his character. And then, you know, he, he looks like he's... I mean, I knew he wasn't going to be treated to a nice meal. And I, I knew that it was going to end poorly for Jamie in some respect. But you probably didn't see that coming. I didn't see that coming. Heather did. Oh, she did. Yeah. She was like, oh, I knew they were going to take the hand. Hmm. It must have been something to do with one of the, uh, with some of the camera work. It must have um, sort of led, led to it. All right. So. The, so what are your what are your thoughts yeah, on the yeah, music? The, uh, the, well, I like it. I like it a lot. And I when I first watched this episode, I knew it was coming because I knew that he loses his hand. But I was still kind of shocked by it, even though I knew it was coming. And the song at the end it just sort of added to my enjoyment of the shock. <laughs> um, and I just learned today why they decided to go that direction. Oh, okay. Lay it on me, Daddy. They were influenced by an American werewolf in London. Mm-hmm, okay. And in that... Your blue moon ending. Yes, the blue moon ending. So, like, I don't, I don't want to spoil it, because I know that there are people out there that have not seen this movie. It's been out for a long time, but it's one of those things that may, may be under the radar. If, mm-hmm. if, if you like a movie about a, a werewolf... Then go watch it. But something shocking happens at the end. And then it cuts to this sort of 1960s Blue Moon song by Marcel, which seemingly does not fit the mood that, that they've just put you in. 
But I guess the the showrunners Weiss and Benioff really liked the ending of American Werewolf in London, and so this was something of an homage to that. Gotcha. In addition to that, there is a mention of werewolves in this episode. That is true. Well, there's multiple wolf. I mean, obviously we've got the sigil concept, but like you got the bread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you've got the question from the Lannister boys about whether or not Rob turns into a wolf. See, I like that a lot. And I like that because what I think is going on with a lot of these stories is that Martin will take a popular myth. You know, so there's like, there's werewolves, but the werewolves aren't the kind of werewolves that like turn into wolves that you know, wolf out during a full moon. Right, or, or surf on vans on their way to school. Yeah. No, that's not that's not what they like do. The typical like the typical fable. These are different these are works, right? So so Martin likes to take the popular mythology and then give it a little twist. But I like that there's a little wink to people who know the popular mythology. And I think that's what Talise is doing. Like, is it a full moon? Yeah, nothing to worry about. Right, right. Yeah, because I thought about that, too. I'm like, does that even, like, that's that's our understanding of a, of a tale that would be way after, as far as we know. It's a little bit like Lost Boys, where it's like some of the rumors about vampires are true and some of them aren't true. You know, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. This is the last we see of Hot Pie, Steve. Is it? I mean, is it for sure? Did he get? Did he just sign his his big movie deal? <laughs> just couldn't work it out with the uh, the schedule. Well, I won't say anything more about whether or not he comes back, but I'm just saying that for now, Hot Pie is uh, he's not going to be a an important player in the Game of Thrones. You're not going to see Hot Pie in the Iron Thrones. Yeah, I, 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 the the Vegas odds of him being on the Iron Throne were so. So tantalizing that I almost put my money on it. <laughs> so I'm like, man, I mean, these, it's like 4,000 to one odds. I'm going to miss them. I'll be honest. I'm going to miss that pie a lot. He added value. If ever, Steve, someone wants you to make a baby with him, I think a good line would be, it would kill you. <laughs> can't, I can't, I am not down to clown because to do so would be to kill you. <laughs> because Stannis's fires are burning low. Oh man, I know. That's uh that was quite the uh I mean, he's like don't leave. She's like ah, I'd love to stay, but you're fire. It's <laughs> barely a glimmer, bro. <laughs> your fire ain't what it was when you were in your mid 20s, dude. I mean, man, talk about hitting close to home. Like, hey man, I've been there. <laughs> so we got more uh we've talked about this quite a bit. Because, of course, if you can make smoke baby once, why not just keep making smoke babies? Right. And you find out that, you you know, it, it takes a lot out of you, apparently. Apparently, it takes a lot out of you. And Stannis has the same idea. He's thinking things are not going well. Let's just Let's smoke baby it up. Yeah, exactly. And clearly, it's not just the smoke baby he wants. I mean, he's he's a little, little randy as well. Sure. Sure. Making a smoke baby is half the fun, they say. So, yeah. Now, does that help you with the smoke baby thing at all? It does. I mean, here we go. It's, you know you know me. I like a little rules. That's all. That's all I'm looking for is just a little bit of rules. And there we go. There's a rule there. It's like, you know, it's like a video game where you got to go and collect more hearts because you're starting to, your character starting to flash because his health is going down. Yeah. 
No, she doesn't really say what would like bring us fires back up or whatever. If there's some sort of rule that you can only make like two a year or something. I don't know what the <laughs> what the rules are. And then she says she's gonna go find someone else with his blood in their veins. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that's but the question is what, right? I mean, is it more it's it's just hey, look, I'm gonna have to have sex with another with a relative, but it's fine. Yeah. You're still my favorite. Or is or is there something else? Or is there another way to get what you need? That's a good question. Um, speaking of fires, uh, Podrick's fires are burning high. <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. In fact, Podrick seems to have something of a superpower. It would appear that way. And uh, Tyrion and Bronn are baffled by this. This episode starts with uh, something of a comedic. Oh, we yeah. that sort of... I don't know, Viking-style burial, not at sea, but in the river or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I guess if, if you look at it, it's bookended by some trope-busting, right? It opens with a little humor, and then it ends with sort of this, like, big scene, but then, uh, you know, the, the song. And so it's an interesting episode where it broke a little bit of what you would consider rules that it's established. And in a way, there's something to be said for that in terms of tone setting for the rest of the show. It sort of takes you off guard. Like, if you're, if you're, you're a viewer... You've been in this for two seasons. You're cracking into season three here. It could be easy to start getting a little complacent, you know, and like to the point where we're talking about, hey, could you make another smoke, baby? Then they're like, I can't. Not not this guy. He's he's all out of fire, baby. And then meanwhile, you've got guys shooting blanks to start the episode. And, and so there is a, something to be said for this one sort of, it shifts some things around, right? I mean, and even the, the see you later to hot pie, it's just like, okay, we're going to shed this character mm-hmm. But don't worry, we're going to add more, I'm sure. You know, it's like, it, so there's, it's, it's an interesting episode in that regard. I liked, I liked it quite a bit. Oh, and you had that, also that comical scene with Tyrion in the chair. Oh, yeah. Oh, what a great scene. Just, just. And man, I tell you, low-key Tywin is just, just one of the, my favorite characters to see on screen. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they do, such, the actors do such a great job of, of recognizing, I mean, like the gravity just is sucked his direction the whole time. I'm a huge Charles Dance fan. I think he's amazing in this. There's no other character in this show that's that just has he just strikes fear into your heart by his mere presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even to the point when when Tyrion is doing the chair thing, I, mean, I don't do that when Tywin's there. <laughs> you know, it's like even though it's like it's all yeah, it's just dad well, and it's say, all that stuff. But it's like I mean, I guess you could say I never thought about it in this way before. But try this on for size. Tywin has no discernible weakness, except for maybe Tyrion. I think Tywin thinks, man, this is the only chink in my armor is this Tyrion, you know, blemish on my legacy, and and he loses his cool with him. Right. I mean, like, especially in that sequence, like it's like it's so there's a different type of frustration. Like there's like it's also maybe that's the key is that with Tyrion, he loses his cool Mm -hmm. almost just by virtue of his existence. Like he's just his existing is enough to make him upset. So there's so just his presence is almost uh, kryptonite. That's right. That's right. I mean, look, he's got all the money. He's got clearly got the power. He's well positioned. People owe him money. He doesn't owe other people money. He's got the reputation, legacy, all that. The only thing that's wrong with Tywin, 
is Tyrion. Yeah. And that kind of tells you something more about Tyrion. Let's return to Jamie and Brienne just for a little bit here. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, this. It starts with Jamie and Brienne on horseback, and they're tied to one another. Jamie is just being horrible to her. It's an odd one, right? Because, I mean, it's, this is where Jamie's being, being very Jamie. He's being very on brand, right? He's, he's poking, he's prodding, but there's a little bit of a twinkle, but you can't tell, like, with Jamie, like, what, what, like, cause, you know, after killing his nephew or whatever, there's that sense of, like, what, what is this guy about? Like, even when he seems good and charming, is that like, is that real? But then he's also just a man of means mm. or is it, is it more psychopathic? Is there, does he take joy in creating this sort of emotional chaos with people that he's talking with? Um, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting character study. And so here he is with Brienne and it seemed like there was some level of respect perhaps and like throughout and yet here's this and it's like is this arrogance that leads him to this like at the end of it like he really thinks like i'll get us out of this like i'm not too worried about these guys or is it just him that's his coping mechanism well there's no doubt that he's arrogant i mean that that that, that much is I mean, he may be the most arrogant man alive i think that he really does like the verbal sparring he loves it as much as, you know, Tyrion loves verbal sparring. Sure. I think he has an idea of how he wants to die. You know, he'd rather die with a sword in his hand. Right. Um I think he feels like he can basically talk his way out of anything. Yeah. And if he can just be a, a little bit patient, eventually money and greed will win out and he'll be the beneficiary. Yeah, or or at a minimum, uh, I can talk myself into getting a sword, and then yeah. I'm I'm the best around. So. And this guy Locke, he doesn't care about money or greed. He's like the Joker. Yeah, he cares not about Jamie's what what anything that Jamie has to offer. Jamie runs into a bus saw. I mean, yeah, no doubt. Danny's playing fast and loose with her dragons. Yeah, she is. Wow. Yeah, she's disappointing the men in her life, Steve. <laughs> These old men, their fires are burning low. They don't want to give away. They don't want her to give away her fire. Yeah, so because they're they're viewing, they view the world through the lens of their own dissipating fire. That's right. They see their mortality. Yeah. And their own impetus. And she's really. just and she's just wielding it. Yeah. She's got three. What do you need three for? You can conquer the world with two. You don't need three. But. It's a lot easier to conquer the world when you've got the only. Breath. That's true. That's true. It's sort of like, let's say you're the only country with nukes. Mm-hmm. And you decide, you know what? We need some more foot soldiers. Let's give away one of our nukes. Uh, now you just changed everything. Right, because now that one, the country that gets it is like, all I need is one nuke. That's right. That's right. So they're upset, and she's upset with them for questioning her. There was a little godfather yeah. in this, a few little godfather homages, I thought, in this episode. You got the severed horse heads up north beyond the wall. Oh, yeah. Right? You kind of have that sort of Corleone moment where Michael tells Fredo, never question me in front of someone outside of the family. Right. For so, sure. So she's got that going on. Um, There was one other that I was thinking of, and I forgot about it. Oh, um, when uh, we flash back to Ned Stark running around with an orange in his mouth. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's a very underrated scene. <laughs> I think that was all Brando, or do you think Coppola wrote that in the script? I don't even think Brando knew he was being filmed. <laughs> They're like, are you going to film? Hey, Francis, go f- just, just bring the camera out and watch when he takes lunch. <laughs> that, that little boy, he was not in the script originally. No. They had to write him <laughs> in after that scene because it was yeah, so good. Exactly. <laughs> and now here is part of my Q&A with Jana Matthews. Jana is a professor of medieval literature at Rollins College, our go-to person on all things medieval. So if you have a question for Jana on something related to the medieval world and or its relationship to Game of Thrones... Send those to book at baldmove.com. Here is Jana Matthews. Okay, this is a question from Zara. She says, my question is a what-if question. I was thinking of Cersei, Sansa, Marjorie, Catelyn being, like, what if they were male characters versus being mm. female characters? They were all smart and strategic women who had to maneuver through their children, husbands, or other male figures to in order to gain political power. Sansa wanted power in the last season of Game of Thrones versus the book, so this is not a book-only question. I wonder how their characteristics would have helped them survive and thrive better in the Game of Thrones setting if they were men. So I'm going to... She's got a second part of the question, but I think I'll throw that to you first. Like, if you imagine some of these, these shrewd politically savvy women like Cersei, Sansa, Marjorie, and Catelyn, how would their storylines have been different had they been born male? Yeah, no, I, I think that that's, that's a great question and ties uh, so nicely with, I'm going to sort of throw a literary theory term in here about like Judith Butler's gender trouble, which, you know, she argues that, that gender is performative. Um, and in that sense, I think what the female characters in um, in Game of Thrones have had to do is they, they've they mastered the art of, as the reader said, as Ara said, um, like learning to adapt and to take their shrewdness and their, um, their desires and mm-hmm. to present them in a way that they appear to be the ideas of men. Right? And so they have to introduce them right. at, at right. And um, and I, I think that that is a special skill, but it's actually, I think what's most remarkable about that particular attribute is it's one of restraint, you know, like year after year after year, not being able to sort of formally and forcefully articulate what you want and, and go and actually do it, but have to use other people as your, um, as a vehicle of your own desires, um, is, and you know, you're, it, they really, it, it's, um, it's kind of remarkable. And I would say that it's not an attribute that is solely held by, the women in Game of Thrones, but it's held by almost all marginalized characters yeah. um, there, right? And so we have men who are, uh, we have you know, eunuchs, we have dwarfs, we have um, people who are of different um, ethnicities, we have children, like all of these people have to, you know, anybody who's not a male, right, um, or male that is in, in, in a position of power has to use these strategies and sort of work through them. So, right. Um, I was also I, I thinking know. about location too. Yeah, because if you think about like if Catelyn was born sort of a male Tully, mm-hmm. she wouldn't have moved north. I mean, she wouldn't have had to right. like become the Lady of sure. Winterfell, and she would have been able to kind of continue to be a political 
player in the South. Right. And of course, Sansa, of course, wouldn't have gone to King's Landing and all that business. So she could have continued to be a political player in the North. And then you could argue that both of those characters would have had a lot less trouble. Yeah, I, I think that really like what the you know, I mean, sort of to be as specific and narrow, I think, in my answer um, to that really excellent question is, is that if, if restraint is a, ne- is a necessary attribute of being a woman in this particular period or in the show, then the difference is if they were born men is they would not have to have cultivated that attribute. Hmm. So men are, at, are allowed to act impulsively. They are allowed to kind of say what they, whatever they, they say, they're allowed to make mistakes. They're allowed to, um, you know, engage in open dialogue with others and like women and they're allowed to like ultimately like have agency to kind of do what they want where women are have to be work behind the scenes to make that happen um you know to enact similar sort of um Hmm. sort of make moves and so i would say that it's kind of an impossible question to answer at the same time because like imagining them in their male roles like they, they wouldn't be held back by mm-hmm. um and their so childhoods would have been different their, their childhoods would be totally their different relationship right? to yeah. their fathers and uncles and mothers would have been yeah. all of that would have have been yeah. different i i think that men are equally shrewd or they have the ability to be equally shrewd they just don't have to be well the consequences are different so, right right so, so it's sure. not like it's not like uh you know ramsey bolton doesn't have consequences. It's just that right. Ramsey Bolton has his, the consequences for him acting impulsively are so much different sure. than, than if, you know, someone else in that position would, yeah. have, would have been that way. Um, so, yeah. So then if you know that the consequences are different, then you have to teach yourself to limit yourself in terms of, of, you know, in your impetuous, you know, inclinations or something like that. Right. Absolutely. Hmm. That's really that's really well said. I think it's common for people to talk about gender roles in this world, but I don't think I've ever heard it said exactly that way. Let's maybe we'll save a few of these for another another day, and maybe we'll collect a few more uh, from listeners, and we'll see how this goes, and we'll get back together. No, anytime. I mean, so anyone who wants to talk about the medieval period or the historicity of Game of Thrones or anything else, like uh-huh. right, sign me up. Absolutely. Okay. Very cool. All right. Thanks, Janet.